Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by the press's assistant director and editor-in-chief, Catherine Cox, and acquisitions editor, Caitlin Tyler Richards, to discuss acquisitions, publishing, and what's ahead for MSU Press. Thanks for tuning in. When it posts, this will be the 21st episode of the MSU Press podcast, and it's nearly the end of our second season of the show. This season, we've talked about Cleveland architecture, African cinema, hats, and French indigenous families in 18th century Detroit. We kicked off this season with a discussion of academic journal editing, and I'm excited to be adding to our roster of shows about the processes behind the scenes of scholarly publishing with today's discussion of acquisitions editorial. I have with me today two of MSU Press's editorial staff who work in acquisitions, Catherine Cox, the Press's assistant director and editor-in-chief, and the Press's newest member, Caitlin Tyler Richards. At this point, I'd usually offer a bit of biographical information about each of our guests, but since today's episode is more of a free-form conversation than an interview, I thought we'd start with Catherine and Caitlin introducing themselves and saying a little bit about how they came to university press work and acquisitions in particular. Catherine, would you mind beginning with a little bit of your editorial background and the work that you do at the press? Sure. Well, thanks for inviting me, Kurt. Um, As you said, I am the editor-in-chief at Michigan State University Press. I've been in scholarly publishing about 20 years now, most of it in acquisitions, although I did spend some time as a managing editor as well. I really love what I do. It's the most fun in the world. You get paid to talk to smart people about interesting ideas and to help them move forward into publication. So I couldn't have landed in a better place. I really enjoy the job. How about you, Caitlin? How did you come to University Press Publishing? Well, I'm definitely newer to it than Catherine, but I've always been interested in scholarly publishing since high school, I would say. After graduating, I interned with World War II magazine. During college, I also worked with the International Peace Operations Association and their journal. I took on a number of odd jobs doing um, copy editing work and other types of editorial work, but eventually I learned that I was really interested in scholarly book publishing. And for whatever reason, I decided the way to get into that was to go to graduate school and study the history of academic publishing in Nigeria. And so I ended up developing a dissertation research project on the history of publishing and reading culture in Nigeria after 1945 made a lot of connections, and eventually found my way to a fellowship, the Mellon University Press Diversity Fellowship, which allowed me to serve as an acquisitions assistant editor at the University of Washington Press. And I got to do that for a year and just absolutely fell in love with um, acquisitions work. Like Catherine said, I love talking to smart people about anything they're interested in, really. Yes. And once I finished up with that, I just spent my time trying to figure out how I could stay in the industry permanently. And I was so lucky to find a position with Michigan State University Press. Yeah. And I'm certain that we're lucky to have you. You are. I think we should point out, too, that, Catherine, you also did a PhD and are a published historian. So you both come from academic history backgrounds. Well, yeah. I mean, history, it's just, it's the best field. So, (laughs) 
it really is just the best. Uh, it does give you, because historians believe you can do the history of anything, um, in a way it gives you a very broad view of knowledge making that I think is really beneficial in publishing so that you approach scholars in different fields with an appreciation for the way that they produce knowledge because you've probably drawn on it for your own historical work in some fashion. So I'm sure every discipline feels that it is, it has that special vision that enables it to see all of the other disciplines. But I certainly feel that way about history and it has served me well as a way of understanding the way that different disciplines relate to each other as well. Simply having a, a historical appreciation for how the university itself emerged. And I think that's really beneficial in understanding the role of scholarly publishers because the rise of the university press is very closely linked to the development of the modern university and the development of modern systems for sharing knowledge. Do you know, one of the things that I really have come lately to love about working at and around the press is thinking about the press's history and thinking about how much of it is built by individuals. Like, I think one of the reasons that it's important that we think a little bit about you know, what your interests are and where you come from when you, when you approach the press is because when you look at, you know, the kind of work that the press has been doing since its founding, there's, there's this great sort of way in which you can trace individual work at the press by what the press is doing. So there was a period, you know, early on where we were publishing a lot of 18th century literature and literary criticism, editions of literary works from the 18th century. When Julie Lohr was with us, we were doing a lot more Native American literature. So each individual sort of brings a different perspective to the press and shapes really what happens there. And so I think that's such a fascinating bit of history to look at, you know, how the press is and how it develops. And I thought it would be a lot of fun to hear what the two of you are doing at the press in this regard and where you see it going, you know, as you work together over the next you know, period of however long to continue the work uh, of the MSU Press. Well, I'm going to toss that one to Caitlin because I would love to hear her talk about what she's going to do with our African Studies list. So our director, Gabe Dotto, started those lists about 10 or 12 years ago when he first came to the press because he knew MSU had such a strong program um, in African history and because the university itself has had strong relationships with African universities and NGOs, um, at least since the mid-20th century. So he said, you know, why is the press not partnering with the other units on the university to, to develop a list in African studies. So he got those started and Caitlin is coming in at a great time to really help us develop and expand those lists. So I'd love to hear from her. Yeah. So to be honest, one of the things that drew me to MSU Press was it's already developed lists in African studies, both in African history, anthropology, political science, the social sciences, and in African literature because my research and interests have always straddled both of those disciplines. And so things like the African History and Culture series with Peter Leggi and the um, African Humanities and the Arts series with Ken Haro and Bob Kensel, I was already aware of those and really excited to work at a press that supported those types of series. And I'm excited to join and continue building on those types of lists that really support what I value most about African studies, which is the interdisciplinary approach to any topic. Very rarely will you find a scholar who studies Africa who works just in history or just in anthropology or engages just in literary studies. It really is a very interdisciplinary field. 
And I think that the press supports and understands that. That being said, some things that I'm really interested in pursuing now are projects on environmental studies, particularly environmental justice, things like discard studies. There's some really great stuff happening with studies of the use of technology and the digital sphere that I'm hoping to engage with. I know one of our series editors, Peter Alegi, is also interested in finding more um, women and gender studies projects to add to the African History and Cultures series. A couple of thoughts uh, to follow up on that. One thing that I feel like it's important that we highlight is how much of a collaboration the work that you do is with series editors and with scholars in the field who, who are the, you know, the source of the works that we're publishing. I think it's easy for folks on the outside to sort of think of an acquisitions editor as someone who, you know, maybe goes out and collects some things or that sits in a desk and, you know, has things thrown at them and then just picks from among what those things are. But I think that that process that Caitlin describes is something that we probably don't spend enough time thinking about in terms of from the academic perspective, like that relationship that you have with the the press that publishes your work and the the degree to which the acquisitions editor is really helping to shape the work that they're putting out there, the lists that they're putting together, you know, in collaboration with editors and, and other and other folks. The other thought that I had or that I wanted to ask the question that I really have for both of you is to what degree do you see yourselves as really seeking to build a list in a kind of focused and concentrated direction? Or do you see yourselves more as curating what's kind of happening in the field? You know, kind of distinction between targeted, I want a book that's on environmental issues in a digital, you know, sort of sphere. And so I'm going to go out and find that. Or do you go and look at the field and say, oh, what's happening here? How can I best represent this as part of our, you know, African studies list or, or whatever the particular focus is? Well, I really see us doing both. At a university press, I mean, since we are serving scholarly communities, there is a significant amount of our jobs that is paying attention to what scholars are doing and seeing how a press can assist them to get there in an area like Caitlin mentioned, like discard studies that's just emerging in, from a lot of fields um, at this moment. As editors, we can look around and say, hmm, this is a really interesting new angle of inquiry. It's not really being served, particularly by a press. You know, we're in a good position to do that, so we can step forward. There are also occasions when you think, oh, there really needs to be a book on this subject, or I can really see a need for that kind of a study. And you can sort of sound out the scholars you know to see if anyone is working on that or to encourage someone to work on that. It's a little harder for us. That's called commissioning. And it's more common, I think, at larger presses where they can actually do things like pay advances or offer help with commissions and things like that. So I would say we do some of it, but it, at least my day-to-day -day acquisitions work, I'm mainly reaching out to people who are already developing projects in areas that I'm interested in. So Caitlin, has that been your experience too? Yeah, I was just going to add, sort of to bring together both of Kurt's points, is that I do think acquisitions is a lot about having conversations. And so while I, I have my interests and the lists I'm interested in developing, I would say that really the first step in that is going out and talking to scholars and seeing if what I think is interesting is what they find interesting and if what I think is worth publishing is what they 
think is worth publishing or if they already have a book that they're shopping around or something like that. So it really is, I do think, a collaborative process. I wonder if we could think a little bit about how the job has changed or how the job is changing. Um, I just attended a talk yesterday that was to do with the history and future of bookmaking. And I forget the name of the presenter, but she was doing this fascinating research on 17th century books that were uh, made out of scraps and collages and things. And her, um, the work that she's producing is really, it's kind of a monograph, but it's mostly a manifold project. Manifold is this digital platform developed by the University of Minnesota. And so she has this sort of fascinating non-book, you know, like I think it'll eventually have a, a paper component, but it's really a digital project. How do you see your role as a book acquisitions editor in this sort of landscape where folks are producing things that are, you know, not necessarily traditional books? It's actually, I don't necessarily think it's changed. It'll change much, the role of an acquisitions editor. As we move from print books to digital books or to a whole new digital projects, because I still think it's a question of the scholar having a research project and trying to figure out how to best share their findings or share their argument or share this just really cool thing. And I still think the conversation comes down to, well, here's how we can support you distributing that information to whatever audience you're interested in reaching. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there are some parts of the acquisitions process that are just so fundamental to the process of developing work that, you know, whatever form the ultimate publication takes, that role of being the facilitator doesn't change all that much. I do think it will require us not in our sort of scholar facing role, but in our press facing role to acquire a lot of new skills. We're going to have to know more about the software and the work processes that go into creating these digital projects than we did with books. I mean, the process of creating a book, you know, we've had more than 500 years to figure it out. And there are certain things about the format and things like that that haven't changed in a long time. And so we don't have to have the same kinds of complicated conversations around you know, the form of it and how you go from front to back and how you organize the contents and provide a table of contents at the front and an index at the back and things like that. Those are conversations that you have to have with a digital, a born digital multimedia project. So I think it's actually very exciting that there are all kinds of new technical and conceptual ways of thinking that we'll have to learn in order to be good publishers, in order to be able to have that conversation with the scholar to say, okay, how do we make your work available to the people who are interested? How do we make sure it's preserved for the long term? All of those things. I think there's going to be a lot more sort of dynamic interaction among authors, acquisitions people, and production people to figure out how this is going to work. And it, it extends past the press too. It's not just presses, but increasingly libraries are really core to digital humanities projects. And sometimes there are standalone digital humanities units on campuses. So it's really enabling us, I think, to think creatively about how we get scholarly work out there. Thinking about what form it takes then forces us to rethink distribution, to rethink our partnerships, to rethink the whole process. And I think those are actually great opportunities. I definitely agree with that. I guess I would just say, especially 
this is such a historian thing to say, but based on my research, I would say that these conversations and these processes of rethinking how books are put together, rethinking how the different departments contribute to the production and distribution of the book have always been happening, right? And so now just because we have this new or these new platforms, these new forms, it's just another time that we're going to have these conversations. And so I do think it's new and exciting, but I also don't think we should be afraid of it, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is what we do. It's sort of getting us back to fundamentals to think about how do we do it better? Yeah. I wonder if this isn't intended to be a gotcha question, but I do, I do, it is something that I genuinely wonder about. When you look at folks who are doing sort of born digital projects, I, I get the impression from a good number of them that even when they end up at a university press, they come with a lot of the production work having already been done. You know, like the scholar who produced the project is the one who, you know, wrote the program that displays it or, you know, created all of these maps or this particular website that houses all the data or whatever the case might be. And I wonder what, again, not as a kind of gotcha, but what is the value added for, for a scholar who's doing all of that work online to come and work with the university press when they've you know already built everything and it's all accessible somewhere on a website? What do we say to them that the press can offer that they're maybe not getting from the work that they've already done? Well, people are having that conversation. Uh, one of the big things is peer review. So there's a, a program at Brown University. I've forgotten the name of it, but Allison Levy runs it, where Brown is funding some of their faculty to create these digital multimedia works. And so Brown is providing a lot of the skill and the computing power and the design. And, you know, they've got a whole team of people to help the authors realize their vision. And one of the steps they take is that they then take the nearly finished project to a university press and essentially the university press then puts it through peer review and puts its imprimatur on the project and then there's a contract and everything and it goes out in the world. I've had a couple conversations with Allison because she's always talking to press people about the various projects that the faculty she's working with are developing and I don't quite know that you know that's a question that I have too it's like what other than peer review what exactly is the press bringing to it and what does a contract look like in a case where the press is not designing it and the press is not distributing it because Brown University ends up hosting these projects. And I don't know the answer to that yet. They just signed their first contract with the University of Virginia Press, which has a large digital publications program. And, you know, I had asked Allison at some point if it would be possible to see that contract um, and it wasn't finished at that point. So she was like, well, I don't know. And obviously, Virginia might not want to share it. But I am really interested in that question, because it is about what exactly is the press bringing to this project? I would say in a lot of cases, the press is actually doing a lot of the production work as well. I know at Michigan with Fulcrum, and at Stanford with a number of their projects, those projects are coming in as proposals. And there has to be sort of a prototype of some kind to show that it, the project is feasible. But they're not taking on things that are complete. A considerable part of that is because the press wants to have a large say in what kinds of software are used to make sure that the project can be preserved for the long term. So they want to discourage people from using proprietary software, for example, that may, you know, not be supported in the future and not get updated or things like that. So I think the trend that I'm seeing is actually for presses to be involved at a pretty early stage. Is that your impression, Caitlin? Yes, I was going to say that I do think 
maybe part of Kurt, what you were noticing is that a lot of digital projects that make it to the final round and get published and become publicly accessible are these big team projects that have funding backing them. And so I think now we're starting to see a rise in smaller team projects and also projects that are being produced by individuals where they have a project, but they're not quite sure how to scale it up or how to make it, how to scale it up, how to make it publicly accessible and how to make it sustainable. And so then they are going to presses at the beginning of the process. Um, So they're the ones that Catherine mentioned, and I know um, also Raven Space, which is connected to the University of Washington Press, is doing a similar sort of, has a similar sort of process that they're working out. And so I think we're going to start seeing more or I hope as someone who works, who is working on a digital project, we're going to start seeing more small team or single author digital projects where the scholar is able to work with the press from the start and get that support. And then once that process happens a few more times, I think we'll get a better sense of what exactly the press brings to the process. And it may vary. I mean, because as, as, as we were all saying earlier, there are a lot of different platforms and the the platforms have really different affordances and different expectations about what the press will do, what the author will do. You know, Manifold, at least the last time I got a tour of it, is designed to be plug and play so that a press, you know, with a good solid uh, set of skills in the production department can adopt that platform and create, essentially, it's kind of the monograph plus and then a supplementary suite of multimedia materials uh, to go along with it. And some of the other platforms are require more sort of programming or design skills behind them, but they're also more flexible in the kinds of projects that they support. So there are different options out there, and I could readily see a small press like ours where we're not going to develop our own platform, turning to some of these pl- existing open source platforms that have been created as authors come to us with projects, and some people may need more support from us than others or different kinds of services and then as caitlin said as we do these projects we'll figure out what it is that we are best equipped to provide and where we might need to seek partners for example with long-term hosting can we partner with a library or an institutional repository to provide that kind of support you know i think another another aspect that we're probably loath to mention is the commercial one right that i think that one of the things that the press very clearly has to offer that other units at the academy don't is the history of thinking about how to distribute knowledge and how to group knowledge together and present it to readers who aren't necessarily or you know users or whatever we want to call people who interact with digital projects who aren't necessarily siloed in specific discipline or who aren't attending conferences, but that who might encounter a book in a bookstore or who might be part of a mailing list or um, however else we reach folks by marketing, that there's a great advantage to getting something that can get buried or hidden on the web somewhere into a list of like-minded works that are directed at folks who want access to that kind of stuff. I wonder if we'll start to see that kind of aspect of the press becoming more central to its identity as we drift away from, you know, always just printing and publishing books as as has been the case low these centuries. I feel like, Catherine, you and I have, have had conversations about this and is something we're really excited about because I'm tasked with developing the African Studies list and I'm interested in making sure that our projects 
are accessible to people in Africa. And the digital turn, for lack of a better term right now, is actually really helpful in that respect. So I'm really excited about being able to maybe develop more ebook first titles or develop more digital projects that we can share across the continent because getting books across these arbitrary marketing regions has proved very difficult. So Yeah. And I mean the other side of the distribution networks though, and this is something a lot of people are thinking about. So these digital multimedia projects are not going to easily fold into the existing book distribution networks for lots of reasons. You know, they're not books, they're not discrete units that you can slap an ISBN on and send out in the world. They're also, nobody's really figured out how to commercialize this stuff, right? So there's got to be a whole different system for funding them and also for making them discoverable. Um, And just a couple weeks ago, the Tome Initiative, the Toward an Open Monograph Ecosystem Initiative, had a meeting, I think it was their third year of the project, sort of evaluating how things were going. And one of the big topics is always, how do we make sure that people know that these projects exist? And how do we make sure that they get out there to the world? And then how do we measure how successful they are? And these are fairly standard. I mean, they're monographs. They're not necessarily multimedia. But because they're not being sold in the same ways, you have to find different ways of measuring How many users do they have? How many downloads? How many page views? But that, I think, is the future of all books, frankly, especially scholarly books. Print is not going to go away, but because of the constraints on library budgets and space, increasingly these ebook aggregations are the way that libraries, scholarly libraries, are going. And that means we need to be thinking about ebook first. And once you're starting to think ebook first, I think it becomes easier to think about the digital multimedia as well, and creating new systems of letting people know that it's there, you know, and not just that first time when you launch it, but over the long term, making sure that things are preserved and available and accessible so that when a scholar sits down to do a new research project, they're finding works out there, whether they're digital multimedia projects sitting on a GIS database or an ebook or a print book that there are systems, metadata systems for sharing um, and preserving that information so that people can find those works. And that's where I think the whole digital multimedia, you know, it's the sort of most exciting and challenging in terms of what it looks like and the workflow. But it's, it's just one part of this larger effort to figure out what does the internet mean for us and for how we create and distribute knowledge, right? And how we circulate it and share it. And that's publishing. Is, and this goes back to something you said earlier, Caitlin, that is what we do is get that stuff out there and circulate it and make sure it's available. I think the commercial part of it, you know, we have to figure out whether our existing business models can be adapted to the new platforms and also what new models are out there. And it's a very difficult position to be in, but I think it's important to look at the opportunities as well as the challenges. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Catherine Cox and Caitlin Tyler Richards discussing the role of acquisitions editors and university press publishing in the scholarly communication ecosystem at large. I wonder if we could think a little bit more about publishing just sort of broadly in the way that things are changing, you know, as as you said, Catherine, as we think about what does the internet mean to us? 
One thing that I've been thinking a lot about lately, I attended a bunch of the George Washington University Publishing Ethics Conference, and there, there's been a sort of feeling in the air, like since the summer, I think, where there's been a kind of emphasis on the degree to which publishing can hope to change the world you know, do the reading kinds of attitudes, like we'll get enough of the right kinds of books published and we'll get them distributed and folks will learn and grow and things will change. And I think you set, you see in the wake of that kind of attitude, a lot of presses and universities and other places are starting initiatives. You know, we're going to have a new list in critical race theory, or we're going to have a new list in you know, LGBTQ plus issues, or we're going to have a new list in, you know, the the fate of our electoral democracy. And I think all of that is vital and, and important and, and like potentially, you know, life changing. But I also know that these kinds of things take time, that you can't just respond to the news with the full force of the university press system like that that peer review takes time that it takes time to do good research and to do good scholarship and and to get it reviewed and to produce a, a quality book what do we do as publishers in this sort of world where there's a great hunger for books and information and and access to those kinds of things and it confronts this kind of time scale that makes it more difficult to to be real agile and to respond to your time question, I think one answer is for scholarly publishers to recognize the types of books that we do and the types of books that we don't do. I mean, so there are, this summer, there were so, for better or for worse, there was a sudden rush of lists of here are the top 10 books to read to learn how to be anti-racist. And they were published by Penguin and Random House and all the other imprints that they own. And that's where commercial publishing is useful. They can find the authors who are working on those books, give them the financial support they need and get those books out ASCP and capitalize on people's interests or um, support people's interests by giving them books that they want to be reading. I think where university presses can step in and be most useful is that we support the scholars and books that are making similar arguments that are going to be longer lasting. So Simon Balto's book on um, police violence in Chicago, I think, is an example of a scholarly press book that is making similar arguments to a lot of the commercially published books that were circulating in the summer. But the arguments I think that he brings up are just, they're going to stand the test of time a little bit better, or they're going to be more useful when we inevitably come back to this conversation in however many years. And I, yeah, I think that's where scholarly publishers, it's, we don't necessarily have to like rush to answer, to feed this need because we're, we just have to keep doing what we're doing. We have to keep finding the scholars who are already doing this great research and supporting them. Yeah, I, I completely endorse that. And I think I would go back to Kurt, to the way you phrased the question about presses starting new lists in response to the events of this summer and say, actually, I think we got there first. You know, I think university presses actually are able, because of the kind of institutions we are, to support books on topics that the commercial presses won't touch and to, for in the long term. I mean, you know, there are presses who have been publishing on LGBTQ issues for decades, you know, long before marriage equality, long before, you know, the idea that discriminating against 
LGBTQ people was not respectable. There were presses supporting that work, work by scholars in those groups, uh, good scholarship about those groups. Likewise, I mean, if you look at Ibram Kendi's book, which was so popular over the summer, and justifiably so, was on bestseller lists for even before this summer, he is drawing on a century of scholarship from small university presses and people who could not get published by the big commercial presses because the public, you know, the presses looked it out and said, there's not enough people who care about this to read this work. But university presses, because we are nonprofit presses, because we exist to serve scholarship, we are able to publish work by and about marginalized people earlier than the commercial presses. You know, we're able to publish work that takes unpopular points of view or that questions ideas that most people think are unquestionable. And I think that's, that's a big part of what we should be doing ethically is enabling that kind of scholarship, enabling people who are not in the mainstream to express their points of view, to do their research and to get that work out there. You know, maybe 20, 30, 40 years down the road, that research then becomes the new common sense. And you start to see those books coming out from commercial presses, building on that foundation. But I feel like in a lot of cases, it's university presses that are building the foundations. And just the fact that you don't see us in, you know, the cupola at the top of the house doesn't mean that we're not playing that really important role of holding up this, this new edifice of knowledge. I also want to add one thing that I did notice this summer and that I think is worth acknowledging is that there was a rise among university presses of acknowledging the lack of diversity within the presses themselves. And so there was, I think, a very positive effort towards acknowledging that and um, thinking about ways that we can address that. Like I said, I came into university press work through the Mellon University Press Diversity Fellowship, which started a good number of years ago. But I think for better or for worse, after what happened this summer, there is a renewed investment in supporting that, those types of fellowships and supporting other types of diversity and equity work in university press publishing. And I do think that was a shift that happened this summer. Yeah, I think it took off this summer. You know, the Mellon program, I think, is three or four years old now. But yeah, I mean, we were galvanized by what happened this summer, like a lot of people. And I do feel like, you know, things like that GWU ethics conference and some of the sessions we've had at the AU Press's meeting, it seems like there's a really sustained and sustainable effort to change publishing, you know, the inside, diversify our ranks, really force conversations about how the demographics of the profession affect what we do, the kinds of scholarship we support, the kind of authors that we seek out. And those are much long overdue conversations. And I, I guess I feel hopeful that we really are seeing a sustained shift now. Do you feel pressure from uh, maybe more broadly, like trends and current events in your acquisitions? Or are you just looking for the, the greatest, bestest of what scholarship has to offer? I guess I don't, you know, obviously, yes, we respond to trends just like anyone else. I think scholarly publishing probably tends to respond to trends within the academy which are sometimes only tangentially related to trends in the larger society and sometimes very closely related to them. But I think, you know, going back to what Caitlin said, 
it is important for us as editors to think about whether the works that we're acquiring, you know, really have legs are, are really going to last for a long time and people will be seeking them out for what they have to offer, for the wisdom they have to offer, you know, 10 or 20 years from now and not just reading it this summer and then putting it aside and going on to the next thing. So I, I think it's a balance. I mean, we need to be responsive to where scholars are going and what scholarship, what the directions that scholarship is going. But we need to, you know, use our common sense as well and, and not get too carried away with terms. I'm just nodding emphatically. It's <laughs> <laughs> Emphatic nodding is the best kind of response for a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> You know, one thing that I've wondered a lot about, you know, we've talked a little bit about how the events of the summer have changed our, our thinking about, you know, how the university press is constituted and the kinds of work that it's publishing and what new directions might be in terms of digital publishing and digital projects and those kinds of things. I know that you all spend a lot of your time at academic conferences, and I know that that world has changed remarkably uh, in the wake of the pandemic. What does that look like for you on the ground uh, or, you know, from your Zoom studios uh, as you're conferencing now and trying to acquire books? And maybe what are some tips for authors in these new circumstances uh, for how to, you know, how to deal with that and how to approach you um, and to pitch their project in these uncertain times? Well, um, I guess uh, social media is good. Both Caitlin and I are on Twitter, so you can find us. I'm at Catherine underscore MSUP. Caitlin, what's your Twitter handle? <laughs> uh, I'm at CTR Edits, E-D-I-T-S. And you should definitely hit me up on Twitter. Um, I haven't had the chance to do a digital conference yet. So I, Catherine, I believe you have. So how did that go? <laughs> yeah, just one. Uh, it was not a roaring success. I'm actually really looking forward to the, the two that are coming up soon. So the one we did was a pretty small, it was a local history conference, and parts of it were very similar. I went through the program, I reached out to people whose projects seemed like a good fit for us. Instead of meeting with them in person, I had Zoom meetings with them, and then I listened in on, on some panels for Troy, you know, via Zoom. The difficulty is you just don't have that serendipity of running into people in the halls or catching up with them after panels. It's really, you know, I really miss being able to talk to other publishing people. Because conferences are a great opportunity to see your colleagues at other presses and just see how they're doing. So that part, I think, we still really haven't figured out. Um, so for the NCA meeting coming up on the 19th, they've tried to build in some opportunities for sort of casual back and forth. So we have a couple of 45-minute windows where, you know, we sort of have the exhibit hall. We have a chat channel um, and a live stream so we can interact with people. We do have, we have a virtual booth uh, and there is a chat function there so that we can interact with people on the booth. Um, I don't know. I think it's going to be very different. I think the part that is least different is actually our sort of bread and butter as acquisitions editors, which is reaching out to scholars and having conversations with them about their work. You know, we've done that in previous years. If you weren't able to go to a conference, you could do that over the phone. So we're doing a lot of that on Zoom now. But you just don't have the informal give and take. You don't have the ability to just run into somebody and have a kind of casual conversation about work or scholarship or whatever. So that, I don't know. How are you feeling about African studies, Caitlin? What have you got planned? 
I am sad that African studies is going to be virtual because it really is the conference where everyone who does anything related to Africa comes together and catches up. And as a, specifically as an acquisitions editor, I feel bad because I know a lot of scholars are nervous about the acquisitions process. And there are a lot of people who, for whatever reason, find it easier to just come up to the table and start chatting than to send a, the editor an email. But on the other hand, I am excited that it's going to be virtual because it means that scholars based in Africa and based outside the U.S. are going to be more easily able to participate. And so I'm hoping that helps make uh, the association and make African studies more generally, more equitable, more equal. So win some, lose some, I guess. That is really a paradox of this whole event that that... I went from, you know, going to campus to go to work and, and doing whatever regular work I have to now suddenly every week there's three lectures and six presentations that I want to attend and it's all being, you know, broadcast on Zoom and I could spend all day, you know, watching meetings and listening to lectures and it's, it's, it is weird. It's made things so much more accessible, but not the kinds of things that Catherine's talking about, like how you get together with folks and have those serendipitous moments of small talk. I just wanted to add, um, there is a piece, so a couple of pieces. Um, I am a co-editor of a forum on HNET called Feeding the Elephant, which I will toot my own horn and recommend to people. Um, but we did just do a series of three posts on virtual conferences. Uh, and the most recent was by Elliot Bornstein for Scholars on how to navigate a conference virtually. And he's been trying experiments with having sort of setting up his own Zoom chat opportunities, just opening up a Zoom and inviting inviting people to come in um, and things like that. So check out that piece if you're a scholar and you're thinking about how to navigate a conference. We also did pieces about how to deal with a virtual conference from the point of view of a publisher and from the point of view of a scholarly society. So there are a lot of people sort of thinking creatively about how to make this work. And even after we go back to in-person conferences, I think that we're going to have expanded virtual options. So to everyone out there, if you are also having creative ideas or even things you think are wacky ideas about how to make these better, reach out because I think a lot of us are trying to figure it out. I'll put the links to the to the Elephant Forum and to those posts in particular in the description to the podcast so folks can find them there. If you were going to proffer a couple of pieces of advice to authors in this moment, what would you say to folks who are ready to pitch their project or who are looking for an acquisitions editor? Let's see. My advice would be to not be afraid. I think I mentioned this earlier, but I really do think of um, acquisitions and scholarly publishing as a conversation. And so I would just say to scholars, just feel free to reach out to start a conversation. You don't necessarily have to come to us with a perfectly polished project. We are definitely open to thinking through ideas, to developing projects with you. So if that's what's stopping you, this idea that your project isn't perfect yet, I would encourage you to just go ahead, get in contact with whomever you're excited to work with and just start the conversation. I had an interesting interaction with a faculty member here at MSU, and she publishes in an area that we do not publish in. And so she approached me and we had a couple conversations and she also talked with our director, Gabe Dotto, about publishing. And so, you know, we gave her some practical advice and just, you know, talked about how the process works. And she said it was a really great way to get a sort of get herself comfortable in a low stakes way because she knew that we were not going to publish her book. 
if she didn't want us to publish her book, we're not the right press for her. But she was able to get a sense of how the process worked and sort of do a kind of rehearsal with us in a way. And I encourage people to reach out if you've got a university press at your campus or if there's one in your neighborhood at another institution. Press people are always willing to talk about, to give advice and to talk about the process. Often we'll do presentations on campus. You know, if you want to invite us to meet with your department or meet with your graduate students, we do that kind of thing. That's part of our job. So, you know, not only don't be afraid, but think of us as a resource about publishing generally, even if we're not the right press for you. I think that's all really great advice. I would just sort of add on the don't be afraid score a very kind of practical thing, which is that most, if not all, acquisitions editors have a quota of books that they're trying to publish in any given year. And so they want to hear what you're working on, right? Like there, There's a degree to which if they need to fill a list of books, then they need to talk to people who've got books. So you shouldn't be afraid that you don't have something you know, as, as Caitlin said, all polished and ready to go because it might be a good fit for the list this year or next year, or they might know where it would be a good fit. And, you know, without wanting to intimidate, I would also say you are at that point of you've got a project, you know, you think you have a proposal ready. Do some research. You know, not every press publishes in every field. You really want to find a press that's going to position your book strategically well. You want a press that goes to your major disciplinary conference. You know, you want a press that has some presence in the fields that matter to you. If you end up reaching out to presses that don't do what you do, you're setting yourself up for rejections you don't need to get and that have nothing to do with the quality or the timeliness of your work. They just have to do with, we don't actually publish in that field. So do a little research and then don't be shy. You know, we are looking for projects. We want to partner with authors. I think we're just about out of time uh, for, you know, the block that we scheduled today. But before we go, I was hoping that we could maybe touch on a little bit of what's coming down the pipeline at, at MSU Press. You know, I mentioned some of the books that we've been talking about on the podcast, and I think that listeners would be keen to hear about some projects in process or some recent publications, Catherine, maybe, that were um, that you're excited about or that you, you know, you're happy to see, you know, making their way into the world. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm looking at our forthcoming catalog and two of the things that I'm really excited about, well, they're coming, there are two that are coming out this fall and then another one coming out in the spring. And they're part of this new series that we're launching. In fact, we're launching it at NCA in a couple of weeks on Friday, the 20th at 11 on the morning, Eastern time. We're going to have a live stream with Stephen Hartnett, who's the series editor for our new new series, uh, U.S.-China Relations in an Age of Globalization. And so Stephen's going to be there to talk about the new series. And I think we're going to have at least some of the volume editors for the two volumes coming out this fall. And one of them is Green China, and it's on environmental communications in China. And that's edited by Jingfang Yu and Phaedra Pizzullo. And that's a really interesting look at some of the environmental initiatives going on in China right now. And then the other one is Communication Convergence in Contemporary China, edited by Patrick Dodge. So a really interesting look at the media in China and how people are using them in a variety of really interesting ways with a comparison to what may be more familiar to the listeners of this podcast, the way social media platforms work here in the United States. So those are a couple books I'm very excited about. I'm very excited about this new series. And following up on those in the spring, we will have a book on social media in China. 
So again, you know, a really interesting sort of implicit comparison with the way that social media works here in the United States. Lots more interesting books in the pipeline for that. There's just a really tremendous amount of, of really interesting work coming through in that series. So Very cool. And Caitlin, I imagine it's too early for you to have a lot of projects in the works, but we'll look forward to the new arrivals in the African Studies list and, and other kinds of projects coming along. Yes, I'll just put in a plug to please reach out to me via Twitter or via my MSU contact and let me know what you're working on. I am acquiring in African history, anthropology, poli-sci, literary studies, and digital humanities, including digital projects. So hit me up. And I am obviously acquiring in communications, rhetoric, uh, U.S. history of many stripes. Um, I'm especially interested in Great Lakes topics. And we do a lot of environmental stuff. I'm very interested in contemporary and historical environmental studies. We do a lot around freshwater, freshwater pollution, invasive species, that kind of thing. So definitely interested in those topics. And there are many more also that I am not remembering right now. But definitely check us out. Check out our website, msupress.org. And let us know what you're on. I encourage everyone listening to go and do that. And I think with that, we'll wrap it up there and say goodbye. Before we go, I wanted to say thank you both so much, Catherine and Caitlin, for taking the time to join us today. It's always a pleasure to get to talk about the processes and the publishing and um, what's going on at the press. So thank you both so much for taking the time this afternoon. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Kurt. It was fun. You can find Catherine at Catherine underscore MSUP on Twitter and Caitlin at CTR Edits on Twitter. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to Daniel Trago, Medija Ghost, Kylene Cave, and the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Thank you all so much for listening and never give up on books.